Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts. We bring you sounds to engage with you and invite you to think with us. Migration is discussed a lot in the mainstream media, but the news reports that we see are often missing the voices of migrants themselves. The organisation Migrant Voice aims to change that by supporting migrants to tell their stories, engage with the media and make their own media content. Last month, Migrant Voice Glasgow Network, led by Marjanina Antoniak, teamed up with Beth Pearson, John McDermott, Sean Guthrie, Emma Padner and me, Sadie Ryan, to run a two-day intensive media lab, where a group of people with migration experience honed their media-making skills and worked together to create two collaborative publications, a magazine and a podcast episode. This is the podcast episode that we made together. We've called it Voices for Change. Over the next 50 minutes, you'll hear the voices of the six people who took part in the podcasting strand of the Media Lab, taking turns to introduce and interview each other. Ibrahim, Fatima, Juliet, Ahmed, Anna Maria and Grace. At the end, you'll also hear Anna Maria interview two of her colleagues at Just Right Scotland, Andy and Maisie. Imagine yourself suddenly losing everything. Your profession, your followers. This is what happened with Ibrahim, as he was a famous entertainment organizer, and suddenly everything changed. When I started entertainment in my country, you know, coming from a Muslim background, my family didn't like it. Choosing to be in the media or being an entertainer, organizing entertainment programs, people will just look at you like you're not choosing a a brighter future. So it was all difficult, especially when I started organizing my programs as first. There was no support from people. People frowned at me, you know, um, no encouragement. And uh, it's very difficult. But there was a time... When I started volunteering at Galaxy Radio and I did a lot of training with the BBC, started um, my own programs on radio, the things started changing. People look at me one kind of way like, oh, like he's working on on himself, he's developing and is learning new skills and they give me that kind of respect you know especially when i do host my own programs on the radio have you done any training here in scotland and how well i've i've done a lot of training the first one was with um great govern hill in Radio Buena Vida, and uh, I did another training on storytelling with Refugee Council, with Poverty Alliance, and uh, I was the co-host on radio for the Refugee Festival last year, which a lot of people listen back home, and I got a lot of calls from them. 
and presently i'm doing a video making with greater govern hill community and uh, i'm doing another podcast training too with um refugee council so like i have a lot of opportunities here and i'm doing a lot of training in the media because i really really want to improve on my skills and grab the opportunities uh in general how do you see the media and what you love here in the field of radio well there are a lot of opportunities in the uk especially scotland in the media because most of the time when i explain to people my story back home about being in the media they will try and encourage me and give me the opportunities like being back in the media because it's all um different here you know and uh, you know the media in the UK is more equipped with more opportunities and it's very advanced and given people the opportunities to be part of the media which is very good for me as an uh, asylum seeker what are your future expectation and aspirations well i'm looking forward like going back to university um study media studies and i would like to work in a radio station design my own radio show have my own listeners and give back to the society because there is a saying here people make glasgow and i want to contribute to that do you have any message for authority or some organization or decision maker any message in your mind yes because it's like some of us coming from africa or around the world we have the talent we have the skills we just need to improve on ourselves and we are asking for more opportunities to give us the 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 support that we need so that we can contribute in the society how would you feel if you had an established career in your home country before having to totally rebuild that foundation in a new one with us is fatima who will share her experience it was hard you know looking for a job in a new country you're not quite sure what they're looking for mm-hmm. um you had to find out the hard way to be honest you think it's like okay now i'm just going to apply for this job fill out the application you know upload that cv that uh, covering letter and and i've got the qualification i've got the prior experience but and that's it mm-hmm. but it's not so you talked about experience mm-hmm. how much experience did you have i had altogether in total 7 years of teaching experience in higher education mm-hmm. um so i was teaching at the university before i came here um it wasn't something that i've never done before so obviously there are some skills that are, can be transferred mm-hmm. and do you feel like you were able to transfer those skills yeah i felt UK? yeah i felt like um you know for example when you're teaching you're teaching it doesn't matter who you're who you're if you're teaching um for example children in 
in the Middle East, then it's kind of the same thing when you're trying to make that connection between you and the and your, and your um, their students. But mm. it's about the approaches, the pedagogy, how you teach, that was different here mm. in the UK. So you didn't have that experience of teaching here in the UK, which is really important. So what you're saying is that you couldn't carry over that experience that you had in Libya. Was it accepted? To be honest, I think one of the problems of not of not being able to get a job here was that you had to prove that um, you know or you have that teaching qualification that will um, help you to teach in the UK. So you had to have a teaching qualification from the UK. Okay. Uh, you had to have some training because obviously you come from totally different educational backgrounds. Mm-hmm. The focus is not the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't have that training, you wouldn't be able to get a job. If you're looking for a job that, for example, as a lecturer, then it's teaching and research, then you should show some sort of like teaching qualification. Mm-hmm. They don't tell you that, but you find out the hard way, to be honest. And you said you fi- did you find out the hard way? Yeah, because after <laughs> after getting those, you know, applications, um, after not getting jobs for applying for jobs a few times, you start to understand, like, I need to go and do something extra. But I kind of figured it out myself. And how long were you searching for a job? So I started in 2018. But then I was kind of focusing on, like I said, you know, getting those teaching qualifications. At the same time, I was doing some voluntary work. I was teaching um, in a community center. I was teaching refugees and migrants and women for a year. And I was doing that. And as I was doing that, I was also kind of looking. um, I was applying for jobs and, and doing a bit of, you know, training. So I when I got to the part where I actually got the training, it was like, okay, there was some hope, mm-hmm. you know. I got that first um, opportunity as, <clears throat> sorry, as um, bank staff in one of the okay. universities. But they told me, like, you know, we just need you to know as a bank staff, we might not contact you because we will only contact you if we have shortage and that was in 2018 and mm. I have never been contacted. <laughs> so, and I didn't, to be honest, I didn't even wait for them. Mm-hmm. The moment they said this is like, okay, I need to go. Yeah. But at least it was good for my kind of psychological state. Yeah. It gave me a push. It's like, okay, there is hope. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing is that I only got this when I did that teaching qualification. So I actually went and I had to look for it. I, I, need, I needed to get another qualification that specifically focused on kind of higher education. And was there a light at the end of the tunnel? Um, yeah, I would, yeah. I mean, obviously now as, because I'm now working within academia, so uh, there is hope, but it's just being kind of, it's about how you approach it. Finding, like I said, uh, find not relying on your educational background, not relying on your previous experience but doing something new here in the UK the thing is that in order for any higher education institution to actually consider you they need um, that prior experience of working in the UK and my first opportunity 
when I got training in um, English for academic purposes, when I did that immediately, two months later, I got my first job. It was like five weeks at the language center at the University of Glasgow. The funny thing is that I applied for that maybe four or five times before and I didn't get it. But the moment I got this, it's like, okay, so now come on. Mm-hmm. So you know, like you, knock on it. Yeah, I've got, I, I have two teaching qualifications from here. I've got the degree. I've got, what else do you need? You needed those skills. And mm-hmm. I'm happy, I, I'm, I'm happy that I got to do all of that because it developed me as an academic, as a teacher in every single way. Mm-hmm. So it helped me a lot. And the moment I got that first job, which was for five weeks, then it was really easy to to get. It was like from then from then on, it was, you know, it kind of accelerated, and I got my second job, and so on. Congratulations! Thank you very much. So what you're saying is is that it's more about what they want to see from you rather than your experience. Yes, it's it's what um what you can give. In addition to your experience mm-hmm. it's it's what you c- show them experience here in the uk mm-hmm. there is hope just try to find the, the right direction and mm-hmm. do whatever it, you know all that you can do in your power to to develop yourself as it as a person and as a teacher as well persevere yep yep don't let it put you down After fleeing war and persecution, asylum seekers and refugees in Malawi, specifically in the camp, are treated like prisoners. We are talking about this horrible situation with Juliet today. I am Namaria and this is Juliet. You know, the life in a camp is completely different from the people living outside of the camp. For example, when you wake up morning, you think, when am I going to have a breakfast? What am I going to have? And what is the plan for a day? For people living in a camp, it's not the same because they don't have enough provision. They can't decide whether to have a breakfast or not. And they have one meal a day and not enough. Sometimes they can have not even enough meal because imagine you are getting one teaspoon of salt for a month, one kilo of maize flour or maize for a month, you are getting like no like beans or no other things. So it's really a life is difficult in a camp. And the children, no education, no access to education, women, no access to clothes and material. They are living in isolation. They are like in a prison. They can't go out of the camp because if they have to go out of the camp, they have to ask permission and pay money to go outside to camp. Imagine you have to pay $100 to go outside of the camp. And where does money come from when they don't have money? So that is critical situation of living in a camp in Malawi. I'm concerned because this news is nowhere to be found in media. Uh, and I have been contacted with people who are living in a camp in Malawi. Right now, the situation is critical because they have been 
uh, like arrested by the police, stopping them to go out to get some help and extra food because uh, they want them to remain in a camp. And the camp is like prison. Whatever they had was taken away from them. And the media is not highlighted. And these have been organized by Malawi government because it's like military involvement in this military and police hunting any refugee and asylum seeker. And actually, I heard also foreigner who are living in Malawi also was put in whatever, in prison where they are selected people to put in a camp. So they approached me and they, they asked me to appeal to people, especially to a United High Commission for Refugee, to protect them. So in this case, uh, how we can help them? So we are appealing to the UN for this. So what can you say to them specifically? What they can do to help people? Please, United Nation High Commission for Refugee, uh, I beg you to pro- protect the right of refugee in Malawi because asylum seeker and refugee mean the people who have lived to remain, they are treated the same. And the one have right to remain have no right to go outside of the camp and have their life and do what they they, they want. Asylum seekers also are staying in the camp, have no right to say anything or to request something. So it's a crucial that the right are exercises fully. They are protected as other refugees in worldwide are protected. And as like as community in Scotland and as citizens in UK, what what can we do to help these refugees and these people living in these horrible conditions? in this camp in Malawi? I'm appealing to Scottish people, people living in the UK, to support a, a refugee in Malawi. You know you know what I mean. When you are a woman, you wanted to see your children going in school, having education, children laughing, pray, praying, you know, do everything a child can do. But in Malawi, it's not the case. The children have no access to education. They don't have material. They don't have a cross. So I'm appealing to to everyone and NGO to speak on behalf of those refugees and to gather something to send it to them because it will be helpful. Thank you so much. Thanks for uh, letting us know these stories, for sharing this information. Hopefully, uh, everyone who is listening to the podcast can help and support people that are in this very, very constrained circumstances. You also said to me that um, they are mistreated and mm, their rights are not exercised so what we can do to all together and everyone together is to highlight the fact that everyone has rights and human rights belong to everyone right that is true i'm appealing to everybody to call out for government of malawi to give 
or asylum seeker refugee in Malawi the right to decide what they wanted to do, not to put them in prison. As reason children in the UK is challenging, here is Ahmad, a single dad with disabilities, which makes it more difficult for him. Ahmed, how does it look like a day in your life? Well, it is uh, really hard because I have to prepare my children to school. I have to prepare the food for them before they w wake up. Uh, I have a lot to do. I have to drop him to school uh, because I have a daughter, 13 years, secondary school, and boy, 11 years, primary school. I have to drop him to school. But before that, I have to prepare the food and wake him up to do everything for them. Even I'm a disabled person. I have my disability and struggling a lot of things. For this, I feel really hard because after, after to drop him to school, I have to prepare the house, to tidy up the house, to clean the dish, to do everything in the house. This is my daily life. Um, talking about you being a disabled person and a single dad in the UK, a refugee, um, are you getting any support? To be honest, not really. I tried a lot with uh, asking uh, many organizations for support, but everyone, they sent me to other, the other sent me to other. I didn't get the real support for my daily life with my children and my disability. Uh, when I look for a single mom, I found a lot of organizations they supporting single mom. I'm happy for that and uh, the women, she need support, she need help every time. But always we need to look for a single dad who need help, especially if he's disabled or having disability. That is very important for the family to build the family in a good environment. So normally, how do you really feel taking care of two children, a boy and especially a girl who is 13 years and you have to deal with your disability issues every day. Again, I I feel really hard. I'm struggling sometimes in many ways, but I must do my best to let my children happy and don't feel anything missing for them. It is really hard and uh, for single dad to look after two children and with his disability. Uh, yeah, we need somebody or some organization or uh, I don't know who the decision maker to look deeply for uh, single dad with disability with two children. 
because there is a lot of people they are suffering uh, silent they doesn't know how to express or to to express themselves or to to reach the right way so there is anyway did all the things that you explain affects your mental health yes of course that is really affect my mental health uh, when i'm alone at home after my children at school i do i must uh, the, prepare the house uh, do everything prepare the food for dinner uh, do shopping go to find the right food the right thing for them the clothes the a lot of thing they need for this i do everything in myself especially i am disabled and i have many appointments with the hospital that really affect my mental health but as i told you i'm really suffering silent i try my best to let my children happy to continue our life so um what is the connection between you and uh, your your children being a single parent taking care of them you know preparing the food what's the bond between you and them i think sometimes there is a benefit of that be, to be as a dad more close with the children uh, we talk about everything we share everything and to get your daughter 13 told you about everything happened with her in the school about her feeling about my son playing together going together eating together that really amazing feeling from the children and our life Today we are going to talk about Irigo Immigration B, which may become registration soon in the United Kingdom. I'm Juliet, and I'm going to discuss this topic with Anne-Marie from Just Right Scotland. So first of all, imagine a person that uh, who is fleeing war and persecution in his own country. Yes, he is fleeing. There is only different ways to get there are there is only one way to get here is for example crossing a desert getting to a small boat and arrive here because there are no other safe legal routes for them to arrive in UK so they have passed through all of that they have survived uh, all these perils they have endured difficult difficult situation and constraints they arrive in UK and we tell them instead of giving them protection that's their right let's just say it's their right instead of giving them the protection then what we do is we decide to detain them that's what essentially this uh, new so-called illegal migration bill is doing and is proposing to do is a ban on asylum seekers on people who actually need to claim asylum and can claim asylum that is so disturbing what can we do to stop this bill This bill at the moment is essentially being discussed in the House of Lords so it's been going through the parliamentary phase as they call it. So as an organization across UK so there are 
thousands of organizations across the UK they've been campaigning to stop the bill so they have sent uh, briefing statement press release even information about the impact of this bill specifically on children and survivors of human trafficking um, and they are le- leading the way to stop this bill as people that we are living in, in our society in UK and Scotland, what we can do is uh, helping these people to achieve more. How do we do that? We can uh, write to our MP, we can send them letters asking them to stop this bill, asking them to be active, asking them to raise their voices about it. We can use our social media platform uh, to uh, ask specifically to stop this bill, uh, which essentially has human consequences devastating for for a marginalized group of people they are already suffering when through hell to get here. Uh, so that's what we can do. So the, the appeal is for people to use their voices, their platforms, their personal platforms to share this message that this bill needs to be stopped. So this is all this is for saving human life. Yes, yes, yes. Essentially it's to clarifying that no one is illegal. Everyone has the right to seek protection and to seek refuge. Is is a human right belongs to everyone. Everyone can seek protection and for survivors who have been through well to get here. We need to protect them. We need to help them. We don't need to detain them. Yeah, thank you. I think if we can save it, this will make uh, UK or Scotland a better place to live. Yes, that's the hope. Scotland is completely different in the sense that it has a different uh, even uh, legislative system. So what we hope to with other organizations across Scotland in the campaigns, for example, that they have been planned, is to stop this bill, but also to look at ways to build a better future for people across Scotland, that it's inclusive, that it's progressive, and it's looking ahead for everyone. The city of Glasgow is host to a large population of migrants. Having come from different countries with different backgrounds, many can find it challenging to deal with identity issues. With us today is Grace, whose parents are migrants themselves. She will talk to us a little bit about how she came to understand her identity over the years. A funny story I remember um, was back when I was in primary school and we were taking school pictures and of course as a little girl I wanted to look good um the thing is all of my friends didn't look like me they all had straight hair and mine is very kinky and puffy so I decided that I wanted to straighten my hair for my school photos the thing is I didn't have enough time in the morning so I only managed to straighten half of my hair and the rest was puffy as in my natural texture I went into school like that anyway. I don't know why nobody stopped me. Um, And I took the pictures and I looked extremely silly. And I know that this is a trivial story, but it's very symbolic to me. Um, I basically damaged my hair in order to look like my friends. And I sort of 
relate back to me damaging myself in order to be part of a group and that is sort of a theme that has that followed me around until I decided to address it so when you say uh, you decided to address it how did you exactly do that I think I had to reach a point where I realized that I had to accept myself instead of looking for the acceptance of anyone outside of me. And that was when I kept getting into the same situations over and over again. And I just finally decided that I had I had enough of, of going through those cycles. Um, so can I ask you, um, when exactly did you reach that point where you got into that kind of, or you, you had that kind of um, epiphany or understanding new profound understanding of who you are um so it was when I actually went to university um I went to a university outside of the city that I was born in and that university had a quite a large international student population and a lot of them were Nigerians which is what I am ethnically so when I went there I I was excited because I felt like I was going to finally be around my people. And it didn't go exactly how I thought it would go. Um. So what exactly happened? So I just felt like I had to change myself in order to fit in with the group. Um, the experience growing up here is much different from the experience growing up in Africa and you could see that just by the way we acted differently from each other and our different thought processes and that sort of affected the way that I was treated and the way that I was seen by um by my Nigerian friends and I just realized that I, I didn't want to keep trying to change myself in order to fit in with a group that just wouldn't accept me. So I decided to look into myself and actually find out who I am and accept that. And and that's what that's what got me to where I am today with just accepting myself fully for who I am and not trying to reject any part and not try to add anything onto me, just knowing that who I am is okay mm-hmm. and I am a whole person. Uh, can I just ask you something? Because um, raising kids who are kind of, um, <laughs> mul- or who have both kind of identities as well, mm-hmm. I'm I'm wondering because, for example, with my kids, they don't, they consider themselves um, Libyan, but they don't know the language. So they understand, but they can't speak the language. So I'm wondering, like, is there, is this something that you, um have as well um and how did that kind of affect your um the way you communicated with um those nigerian friends or the way you kind of link related with them Mm -hmm. um so i can't speak my language either by the way Uh um but that was okay because um most people in Nigeria speak English anyway, but uh-huh. I can imagine that if that wasn't the case, I probably wouldn't be able to communicate as effectively as I was able to. I was lucky in that aspect, mm-hmm. um, but I do feel like that would have been an issue if yeah. I hadn't been able to. Or if um, English wasn't the second language, is it the second language? 
and it's, it's actually the first language so there are many mm. languages in nigeria and that one unifying language is english uh-huh. um so grace can i ask you um have you ever been to nigeria no i haven't you haven't been to nigeria before would you like to maybe yes. visit nigeria yes definitely um do you think that um, if you visit Nigeria, do you think that somehow is going to kind of affect your identity or how you identify? Mm-hmm. I think it is and something how? that would affect my identity in a big way. Um, I feel like just stepping foot in the country would just... I think I would be able to connect with a part of myself that I probably I haven't connected to before ever. And I feel like it is, will be more of an opportunity to, opportunity to explore myself as well, which I am very interested in, and which I, which is what I am very excited about when I do end up going there. And I'm also excited about the food as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of fruit, exotic fruits there, and I am excited about going into my back garden and being able to just have access to all of that and not have to go to the shop and stuff like that so yeah I'm, I'm i'm very excited to go to nigeria um so my last question is what um what would you like to tell other people who are going through the same um experience what would you like to tell a young girl who just kind of started um relating with your story the story that you told us earlier what would you like to tell her just be yourself like it's very cliche but it's such an important piece of advice um you're going to meet a lot of different people and everyone is different you don't have to fit in with anyone um you don't have to change yourself to fit in with the crowd just stay true to yourself and the right people will come along and the right people will love you and accept you Access to higher education for migrant students in Scotland is now a reality. I'm Anna Maria, Senior Communication Officer at Just Right Scotland, and we are here today with Andy Sirel, Legal Director of Just Right Scotland, and Maisie Wilson, Legal Caseworker at Just Right Scotland, to talk about this topic. So, Andy, the first question is for you. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about the case, uh, how it started, uh, and what it was about, essentially? Yeah, so this case is about uh, a young woman called Ola who was born in Iraq uh, and moved here with her family when she was about 10 or 11 years old. Uh, She's lived here ever since with her family. They work, uh, you know, they have visas, they work, they, uh, you know, live normal lives here. Uh, And she, when she came here, she went to high school and she was a first-class student, really, really clever, top grades. Uh, and when she came to her final year of school, she uh, decided that she wanted to be a doctor. She wanted to be a doctor, uh, I think it was a surgeon, she wants to be in the National Health Service. So, you know, when you get into your final year of school, you're applying for university and college and things like that. So alongside all her friends, she applies for uh, uh, medicine at Dundee University. And at that point in time, she is told that she is uh, actually an international student and she would not be entitled to uh, any access to tuition support or living costs that all other children and young people 
who are British or settled in the UK uh, are entitled to. And, you know, she's shocked, quite frankly, at this. This this is, is a game changer for her because it means that going to university is effectively unaffordable and she can't go. So uh, Dundee University look at her situation and they say, OK, well, we understand that you've lived here for a very long time. Uh, and you're not really an international student. So they say, well, we'll, we'll charge you home fees tuition. So she doesn't need to pay 20,000 a year. She needs to pay 2,000 a year. Um, but the, the, the rules in Scotland that allow for funding uh, still, don't, uh, still don't let her get access to funding. And so she tries to go, and she, well, she does go to, to Dundee University, but it creates an enormous financial strain on her family. You know, loans, uh, working multiple jobs, going into a lot of debt. Uh, it affects her, her life in all sorts of different ways. Whether she, uh, you know, where she lives, whether she can socialise with her friends, it affects her socially. It affects her mental health. It, it damages her grades. You know, she's an extremely determined and capable young woman. And she was doing her very best. But when she moved into <clears throat> second year, you know, medicine's a really difficult degree. And it was getting harder and harder and harder. So when she was in second year, she applied for for uh, for funding again. Uh, and the reason why she was uh, refused in the first place is because the Scottish rules say that if you are a, a migrant young person on a visa, you need to have lived in the UK uh, either for seven years, if you were under 18 on the first day of your course, or for half your life if you were over 18. Now, when Ola applied to, uh, when Ola entered first year of university, she was 17, uh, and she had lived in the UK for uh, six years, 10 months. She was about 58 days short. And she said to the, 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 the Student Awards Agency of Scotland, SAS, she said, well, I'm only 58 days short. Can you just, you know, cut me a break? And they said, no. So in her second year, she applies again because she's lived here for over seven years. And she says, now I'm eligible. And they say, no, no, you're 18 years old now. You need to have lived in the UK for nine years. And so this, the, the, the goalposts keep changing. And it was going to be until she was in her early 20s before she ever qualified. So really putting a pause on her life. Uh, and all the while, this was causing financial strain on her family. So she goes to her MSP, uh, who refers her to us. And we look at this, and it's an issue we've been looking at for a long time and trying to work with migrant young people in Scotland about. And uh, we think, actually, this is the perfect case to try and uh, challenge these rules under human rights legislation. We had a separate case as well at the same time for a young person uh, who grew up in the care system here, lived in the UK for 10 years. Uh, he applied uh, to study an engineering degree because he wanted to join the Royal Air Force and he was uh, about 60 days short. So he was in a very similar situation. And you've got these two kids, you've got these two young people who call Scotland their home. They've lived here for a long time. They want to contribute in the most amazing ways to, to our society and we're telling them no. So when we received these referrals, we thought this was the perfect case. Uh, and so we, um, we, we raise what's called a judicial review, which is a special type of court action which challenges the uh, certain laws in Scotland. And we were basing this case on the European Convention on Human Rights, 
that uh, we all benefit from all the rights in the European Convention on Human Rights uh, through the Human Rights Act 1998. Uh, and we all have a right to education. You have it, Maisie has it, I have it. So does Ola and so does the other young person we worked with. And we were saying to the court, these rules that require you to have lived in the UK for seven years if you're under 18, or the day you turn 18, you need to have lived in the UK for nine years. These rules are not fair. First of all, they're measuring how integrated somebody is to Scotland and whether they can access fees purely on how long you've lived here, not on your grades, not on your family history, not on your own merits or your own circumstances, purely on how long you've lived here. Secondly, they create this cliff edge, right? Ola, when she was 17, needed seven years, and then she turns a day older and she suddenly needs nine? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, so th the rules were problematic for all sorts of different reasons. So we brought our, our, our case to the, uh, the Court of Session in Edinburgh, we argued that it was a violation of the European Convention on Human Rights. We argued that it was a violation of her right to education and that it discriminated against her uh, on the basis of her immigration status. Uh, the Scottish government defended it. They, they defended themselves until the end uh, on this case, uh, but ultimately we won. And so that, you know, that means that the, the court found that this law was a violation of human rights and the government needed to do something about it and they needed to change the law. Thank you, Andy. That was very clear. I think we got also uh, understand uh, the importance uh, of access to the education essentially for everyone as a right uh, that belongs to everyone. Maisie, I'm going to ask you a little bit uh, about uh, essentially what happened after the case and what actually is going to happen next. Yeah, um, well, the case kind of unlocked a series of events after that, a kind of a sequence. Um, so the opinion, which is the decision um, by the judge, uh, Lord Sanderson, came out in September. Um, and then after that, kind of figure out what this meant, because the decision meant that the legislation in place was unlawful, so it couldn't be used anymore. Um, but there's young people applying for SAS funding all the time. Um, so it kind of, they had to put something in quite fast and it was really quite from our point of view, I think quite a, f a series of fast changing events. Um, the government came out with a consultation um, and they also asked us to answer the consultation because they knew that we were such a key player in the role. Um, so we had consultation drafts and also at the same time we did, um, myself and other caseworkers did some out outreach sessions on um, access to education and trying to explain how the law might change. Um, so this Seemed quite fast, but looking back, it's been over the course of about six or six to nine months that this has been happening. Um, and we finally submitted the consultation, which closed on the 31st of March. And then it was kind of a bit of a waiting game to see what the, the government would come back with. Um, but it's come back and it's scrapped the seven year rule and put it to a three year rule. Um, and there's L and they're also making it so um, children of uh, asylum seekers and also unaccompanied child uh, children seeking asylum can also get SAS funding now. So there has been a big improvement. There's also the year one rule, um, which is when if you apply for SAS funding, if you don't meet the eligibility criteria in the first year, that's you for the full course, unless you drop out and reapply, it's, which is quite a mind-boggling rule. Um, but they're not proposing to change that at the moment. Um, so we'll have to see what they do with that. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much, Maisie. Thanks. Andy, last questions for you. Uh, it's about essentially what you think uh, and what you can tell us about the future of human rights law in Scotland after this case, essentially. Yeah, I think this case is a, it's a good news story. You know, when, 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 when we see human rights spoken about in the news and the media, I always get so frustrated because it tends to be viewed in a negative way, particularly through um, uh, the, uh, the the government's lens, the UK government's lens um, just now. Um, but this is a good news story. This is recognising that there's a right there that we all have. And it was uh, used to sort of advance and improve the lives of hundreds and hundreds of young people who call Scotland their home, who've grown up here, who are, you know, our, our friends and our family and our colleagues, uh, and gives them the chance to get the same level of uh, education as, as, as you and I, uh, and to, to grow up and, you know, fundamentally live their best life. It, it's a good example of the Human Rights Act being used in, in practice in our courts. You know, the Human Rights Act is designed to protect people who live in this country. Uh, and support their and protect their rights. Uh, it's an example where we used that particular piece of legislation and its its sister act, the uh, the, the Scotland Act. Um, we used it to Im improve the lives of hundreds of people, uh, and that happens actually uh, more often than you think. More often than gets reported, the Human Rights Act is under threat from the British government. They want to repeal it. Uh, and my message is that we cannot let that happen because if we do, then cases like this will never come to court and the rights that are advanced for individuals like Ola uh, and the communities we serve uh, will not be advanced. And so we need to jealously guard it and stop it from, from being scrapped. And this is, I suppose, a good platform to start that, that campaign. This episode was made by six participants in Migrant Voices Intensive Two-Day Media Lab. Ibrahim, Fatima, Juliet, Ahmed, Anna Maria and Grace. With training and support from John McDermott from Telt Media and me, Sadie Ryan, from the UNESCO RELA team at the University of Glasgow. This podcast episode fits into a larger research project, Migrants in the Media, Participation and Policy developed by Beth Pearson from the University of Glasgow, working in partnership with Marjanina Antoniak from the Migrant Voice Glasgow Network, along with myself, funded by a British Academy Early Career Researcher Network grant and supported by UNESCO RELA and the Glasgow Media Group. Thanks to the staff at the University of Glasgow's Adam Smith Building, who took excellent care of us during the Media Lab sessions, and to the Soul Food Sisters, who kept us fueled with excellent food. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration Through Languages and Arts, a podcast series to make you think. More information about work can be found on the website of the University of Glasgow, www.gla.ac.uk. Thank you very much. <laughs>